uh, this morning we're going to be looking primarily at the first 15 verses of chapter 13. So after you find 1 Samuel 13 in your Bible, stand with me and let's read it together. We're going to read down to the middle of verse 15. So let's read it. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years, 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now, he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, "'Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings.'" And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your king." kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Let's pray together. Father, we... uh, Thank you that uh, you've given us your word, both Old Testament and New Testament. And Lord, we thank you for uh, this history that is rich in uh, not only uh, all that uh, you have done for your people, but also rich in theology, rich in uh, 
lessons, important lessons for us. to. We pray this morning that you would help us to learn these lessons that apply even still today, thousands of years later. And Lord, we thank you that uh, your word is living and powerful and that uh, it is uh, just as relevant uh, when it was first written uh, as it is today, still just as relevant. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, uh, be diligent to uh, apply your truths to our lives. And, Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. Lord, this morning we thank you for Pastor Michael and all that uh, he means to this body of believers. And, Lord, we pray this would be a special day as we celebrate that uh, accomplishment. And, Lord, that it will be a sweet time of fellowship tonight. And, Lord, uh, we just thank you for the church. We thank you for this body of believers, uh, the encouragement that we get from one another. And, Lord, we pray this morning as we worship that uh, everything that is said and done in this place would be pleasing in your sight. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A young boy lived in the country, and his family had to use an outhouse, which he really hated. It was hot in the summer, cold in the winter, always stinky. So he decided to come up with a plan to get rid of it. And the outhouse was located near the creek. So the boy decided one day to just push it in the water and let it float away. And after a big spring rain, the creek was running high. And so he decided this was the time to carry out his plan. Later that day, he ran into his father, who told him that he was going to have to take him to the woodshed for a spanking. When he asked his dad why, his father said, someone pushed over the outhouse, and I think it was you. Was it? The boy immediately fessed up, and then he reminded his father about George Washington. And he said, remember when George Washington chopped down the cherry tree, he didn't get disciplined because he told the truth. His dad said, that's true, but George Washington's father was not in the cherry tree when he chopped it down. Our sin almost always impacts someone else. And sometimes it can even impact a large number of people. Here in this chapter, we see where Saul's sin had a devastating effect on the nation of Israel and ultimately began the end of his reign. 1 Samuel 13 shatters the giddy optimism of chapters 11 and 12. And although there were so many positive expectations of Saul's reign as king, the events of this chapter will document the beginning of a decline that will go for several chapters. And of course, as we emphasized last time, it's not how you start that counts, but how you finish. And Saul will not finish well. Now, I hope you don't get frustrated with the fact that we will only get a glimpse of this before we end our summer series. 
And this may feel like an awkward place to wrap up for the summer in this study of the Old Testament. But we will perhaps come back and pick up on it again next summer and continue to develop this history. Another problem with ending with this chapter is it means that we're going to be ending on a dark, somber note. Uh, Saul had started off so well with his resounding victory over the Ammonites, and there was so much excitement as he was crowned king, and everything looked rosy. But when we get to this chapter, there is a dark cloud on the horizon. The Philistines, who had been obliterated back in chapter 7, have apparently recovered and are now ready to attack with an incredible force. Not only that, but everything in this chapter indicates that the Israelites were being completely dominated by the Philistines. Oh, but there was a much bigger issue in this chapter than the enormous size of the enemy's forces. It is the issue of the heart of the king. And we need to keep in mind the warning of Samuel at the end of chapter 12. He said, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king shall be swept away. Saul looked so kingly on the outside, but what about the inside? What kind of heart would he demonstrate? He may have been taller than all the people, but how tall was his character? God was looking for a man after his own heart. Would Saul be that man? Unfortunately, the answer to that is no. Unfortunately, Saul began to demonstrate a fault that is still very common in politics today. He is going to begin to show that he is driven internally by a principle of expedience and self-justified compromise. Now, I think we can divide this chapter into five parts. The primary section is the dialogue section of verses 10 through 15a, but we have to set the stage first. So we begin with the setting. Look with me at verse 1. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. Now, that's the New American Standard, but you might be saying, wait a minute, my Bible doesn't read that way. This verse is famous for its textual difficulty. One commentator writes, the text of this verse, omitted by the Septuagint, is held to be corrupt, and the numerals denoting Saul's age at his accession, as well as the duration of his reign, are thought to be omitted or faulty. The literal Hebrew reads this way. 
Saul was one year old when he became king and ruled for two years in Israel. Now, how many of you think that's the way it ought to read? Let me see your hands. No, there has to be some sort of copy error here. And modern English translations have a number of different renderings. Several English translations even leave blanks in the text acknowledging that this is somewhat of a mystery here. It's possible that it should read, Saul was one and thirty years old. We're not told anywhere else in Scripture what his age was at his ascension to the throne. But there are some other biblical clues that we can follow. First of all, we're told in Acts 13, 12, that he ruled for 40 years. And since that is divinely inspired in the New Testament, I think that probably should be our starting point. We also know that he had to have been older at this point because his son, Jonathan, is a grown man. And we're told in 2 Samuel 4.4 that his grandson, Mephibosheth, was five years old when he died. So what all this tells us is that there was a considerable time lapse in between when Saul became king and the events of this chapter. In chapter 9, verse 2, we're told that Saul was a young man, but here he has to be much older. And we need to understand that the author of of, uh, 1st, Samuel is interested in getting to the reign of David. So he skips over much of Saul's reign and goes to the end of his rule to the re- his rejection by God and the rise of David. So what I'm saying here is that there's probably a lot of time in between chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 that's not written here. Nobody really knows what numbers to put in verse 1. But the bottom line is that we know he reigned for 40 years because we see that in the New Testament. And by this time, his son Jonathan is grown up. So he has perhaps been king for 15 years or more. You'll just have to study it on your own and see if you can figure it out. But I believe this is now getting toward the end of his reign. The Philistines, who were obliterated in chapter 7, have now had time to fully recover their strength, and they now dominate Israel. But go on to verse 2. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each, to his tent. All three of these locations were in the hill country just north of Jerusalem. Jonathan is mentioned here without any kind of introduction. It's just assumed that the reader will know who he was. He was, of course, the firstborn son of Saul. He is the heir apparent to the throne, although, as 
is made clear later, he will never take the throne because God is going to give it to David, the man after God's own heart. But here Saul chooses 3,000 men of Israel, 3,000 choice uh, warriors, 2,000 are with him at Michmash, 1,000 are with Jonathan in Gibeah, and he sends all the rest of the people away. Verse 3, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, the Philistines heard of it. Stop right there for just a moment. Geba was about a mile away from Michmash with a large ravine separating the two sites. John MacArthur says the fact that the Philistines had a garrison there near the heart of Israel indicates the extent of their dominance over the Lord's people. This victory of Jonathan's is probably the first of his military career, but it won't be his last. And you might think that all the Jews would have been thrilled about this great victory, but it made the Philistines mad as hornets. And notice what happens back in verse 3. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. He's announcing something. Verse 4, and all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. Wait a minute. I thought Jonathan won this victory. Did Saul take the credit for it? Apparently so. J. Vernon McGee says the real nature of Saul is beginning to show. His son Jonathan got the victory, but Saul blew the trumpet and took credit for it. He says, Saul must have believed in the motto, He who tooteth not his own horn, said horn, will go untooted. Right? You can almost literally say that Saul is tooting his own horn here. Of course, everybody in the army knew that it was actually Jonathan who did this. But the rest of the result of the raid is found in the end of verse 4. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Saul now has to call all the people together. He sent them to their tents. Now he has to gather them all together. And he calls them together at Gilgal, which was where he was officially crowned as king. And Gilgal, you may remember, is near Jericho next to the Jordan River. The problem, though, is that the people do not stay gathered for very long. So the next thing we see is the scattering. The scattering. Look at verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash east of Beth-Avon. Uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. Another textual problem, that is. 
this is probably a scribal error, error here in verse 5. They probably did not have 30,000 chariots, but 3,000. In Hebrew, the numbers 30,000 and 3,000 look very similar, and it would be easy for a copyist to get the wrong number here. The word for horsemen is sometimes translated charioteer, and so they probably had two charioteers for each chariot. Some biblical manuscripts actually have it that way, and this makes a lot more sense. However, this was still a formidable enemy. The chariots and the cavalry alone could have easily subdued Israel's armies. But notice that the Philistine troops are described as being as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So the main message of this passage is not lost in this scribal error. The Israelites are vastly outnumbered. And, as we will see, they don't have any good weapons to fight with. Saul is in a very difficult position here. I mean, how do you stand against a force as numerous as the sand on the seashore? You can't. Only God can. And we're told in verse 22 that only Saul and Jonathan even had a sword. And all the rest of Israel's army only had farm implements. So this is a real problem here. In addition to these hardware problems, there are also some software problems. The hearts of these men are melting. They start running fleeing and hiding. Look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Saul's army is bailing fast. Look at verse 7. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Some of the people even took off across the Jordan River over to the other side. And at the end of the day, Saul is going to end up with only 600 men, according to verse 15. And verse 7 says, even those who remain are trembling. They're trembling. This is not a good situation. And Saul is in desperate need of the Lord's help. What would he do? And what would be the outcome? Unfortunately, this leads to the sacrilege. Go on to verse 8. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now most commentators assume that this is referring to what Samuel said back in chapter 10, verse 8. But that was years earlier and was fulfilled in chapter 11, verse 15. Apparently, Samuel, though, has said something similar to this again to Saul in this period of time that we don't have recorded for us. Either way, the command is clear. 
Saul is to wait seven full days for Samuel to come to him and to offer the sacrifice and call upon the Lord. Now, I personally believe that Samuel waited seven days, but not seven full days. We know that Samuel showed up right after Saul made the sacrifice. So this tells us that Samuel was not really late. He was right on time, but Saul was getting antsy here. He waited into the seventh day, but he didn't wait for seven complete days. Go on to verse 9. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, some commentators say that they don't believe Saul usurped the role of the priest here. But the text of this verse sure looks to me like he did. Some say he may have appointed a priest to offer the sacrifice, but look how this is worded here. It says, Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. That sounds like the offerings were brought to Saul, does it not? Then it says, and he offered the burnt offering. It doesn't say he gave it to a priest. It says he offered it himself. So not only was his sin uh, the failure to obey God by waiting on the Lord's prophet, but also by directly violating God's word that states that only the priests can offer the sacrifices. Folks, this is a serious violation of God's commands. Saul did what people often do still today. He took matters into his own hands and did not wait on the Lord. We often do the same thing when we see our problems mounting. We panic. And either we come up with our own remedy or we turn to some other human resources instead of trusting it to the Lord. But what Saul does in his panic is a serious sacrilege. This is a great offense in the eyes of God. And we will later see where King Uzziah will do something similar to this and God will smite him with leprosy to the end of his life. Saul ignored the explicit instructions that only a priest from the tribe of Levi Levi could offer a burnt offering to the Lord. And here's the principle that still applies to us today. Anytime we disobey God's clear instructions and we do something we think is better, it is a detestable sin in the eyes of God. Listen, sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to do nothing. God says, wait on me, but we don't like that. We think we have to do something, anything, but we don't do very well in waiting on God. 
How many times are we just like Saul? How many young people, for example, have jumped out and married an unbeliever instead of waiting on God to bring some committed Christian into their life? How many have jumped out and gotten themselves into trouble with debt rather than waiting on God to provide? How many have gotten into trouble with some sort of bad partnership instead of waiting for God's timing? And provision. How many churches have panicked when they see members leaving and they launch into some foolish kind of campaign of some kind instead of trusting the Lord to grow the church? Folks, we're more like Saul than we would like to admit. John MacArthur says it is a very serious matter for any, anyone to set aside God's requirements. But it is especially serious for those in spiritual leadership. In the same way that Saul's sin impacted the entire nation, so today a spiritual leader's sin can impact a church or even a denomination. In the case of Saul, the sacrilege led to the sentencing. The sentencing. Look at verse 10. And it came about, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel came. Isn't God's timing uncanny? As soon as Saul had finished offering up the sacrifice, here came Samuel, he wasn't late. He was right on time. And listen, in commanding Saul to wait for seven days, he was speaking with prophetic accuracy. Nothing Samuel ever said prophetically ever failed to come true exactly as God gave it to him. This didn't either. He likely came at the very end of that seventh day. But it was not the time that Saul would have liked. Saul wanted him to come earlier, but Samuel was right on God's timetable. He was not late in any way. Now, in verse 11, Saul tried to put the blame on Samuel. He said, you, emphatic, did not come within the appointed days. But Samuel makes it clear that Saul was specifically told by God to wait until Samuel came, and he failed to do that. In fact, the dialogue portion of this text, which is verses 11 through 14, provides the theological ramifications. Look with me at verse 11. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly and have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. 
For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the sentence that is pronounced on Saul for his willful disobedience. The man after God's own heart, of course, is David, who will eventually take over the throne. Saul claims that he had to force himself to offer the burnt offering as if he made himself do the right thing. But Samuel says, you've acted foolishly. And notice, it does not matter that he has what he considers to be rational grounds for taking this kind of action. Human reason is never a good justification for violating God's clear commands. Some people today might read those reasons there and think, hey, those were legitimate reasons, or I would have done the same thing myself, but these are just excuses for failing to trust God. And Saul uses human reasoning, but it is flawed. It leads him in the opposite direction from God's will. And when it says, because I saw, in verse 11, it indicates that Saul is walking by sight instead of by faith. He's being driven here by his fear. Oh, but there must be something missing in between verse 14 and verse 15. I mean, shouldn't it say, and the Philistines came and attacked them and wiped them out, right? Shouldn't it say that? That's what Saul was afraid of, but what he feared never took place. The Philistines did not attack. This was an ungrounded fear, and it just shows his lack of faith. Dale Davis explains that it was highly unlikely that the Philistines would have attacked Israel's army at Gilgal because it was too close to the Jordan River. And because of its isolated location, there was not much uh, chance of being attacked there. But that's beside the point. The main point is that the king did not trust God enough to obey his word and wait on his prophet. The size of the invading army is not the issue. The issue is the willful sin and disobedience of Israel's king. Saul seems to have the kind of theology that says, in case of emergency, it's okay to disregard God's word. If things aren't going well and everything seems to be stacked up against me, it's okay then for me to take matters into my own hands. And the irony of it all is that he claims that he's seeking God's favor in doing this. I mean, look at verse 12 again. 
Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Hey, Saul, here's some news for you. If you want God's favor, obey his word. Obey his word. We will never attain God's favor if we disobey his divinely revealed will. And listen, partial obedience is not obedience. Picking and choosing what parts of God's word we will obey is not walking in obedience to him. And Saul is going to pay a big price for this. Samuel tells him that if he had obeyed the Lord, his kingdom would have been established forever. But since he disobeyed the Lord in this manner, his kingdom would be removed from him. In fact, the rest of Saul's reign would be one sad example after another of what it is like to try to discharge the service of God without the presence and blessing of God. And please understand, this sentence was not just because of one act of sacrilege. It was because that act of sacrilege was indicative of an unbelieving, rebellious heart. Saul is not a man after God's heart. And as God will later make clear to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Folks, listen, it's not about the ritual. It's about a heart of obedience. Just offering up a sacrifice will not guarantee God's favor. That only comes by being obedient to God's Word. As one pastor put it, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And Saul's heart is being made known here. You know, one of the saddest verses in all the Word of God is verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Listen, That statement represents the departure of God's prophet and the removal of God's blessing from Saul's life. Samuel had clearly given God's warning at the end of chapter 12 that if he obeyed God, he would have God's blessing. But if he disobeyed God, his kingdom would be swept away now. That is beginning to happen. Dale Davis points out that, you know, all the bad things that happened to Saul in this chapter, but he concludes that the worst thing of all is that he has now lost the most precious thing of all, the guidance of God's word through his prophets. And he says to be stripped of the direction of God's word is to be truly impoverished and open to destruction. It is One thing to be in terrible distress, it is another to be alone in that distress. The greatest tragedy of this account is that Saul is now on his own. What a terrible place to be. 
He can number his troops, but he can no longer count on his God. This is just as relevant, folks, for spiritual leaders today as it was for King Saul back in that day. God still requires obedience to his word. And his blessing is wrapped up in that obedience. This is really the main message of this passage. And we're in there ending our summer study today on rather a negative note, but it's one we can learn from. We need to have a heart after God and a heart that is quick to obey the Word of God. Oh, but there's one more point in our outline very quickly. This chapter is written in a rather interesting way because the details of the situation are given after the fact so to speak. After the main point is made, then the author goes back and fills in the details of what was really going on here. And I'm calling this last point the somberness. I'm calling it the somberness because it paints a rather bleak picture. That bleak picture starts in the last part of verse 15. Look at it with me. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him About 600 men. Wait a minute. In verse 2, he had 3,000 men. Now, he only has 600. The rest have fled. They're hiding in caves and thickets and pits in the ground. Some have gone across the Jordan River. And in verses 17 and 18, the author mentions three bands of raiders wreaking havoc in the land. Interestingly, the word raiders in verse 17 is a word that can also be translated destroyers. It's the very same word that is used for the destroying angel in Exodus 12, verse 23. These destroyers went out from the Philistine camp at Michmash. One headed north, another went west, and a third traveled to the southeast. No one, could, no one could stop them, and they were dominating Israel at will. On top of all that, the author details the problem with a lack of iron weapons in Israel. In verses 19 to 22, he talks about how the Philistines had a corner on the iron market. So even if the Israelites wanted to get their farm equipment sharpened, they had to go to the Philistines to sharpen it for them at a price, of course. MacArthur writes, the Philistines had superior iron and metalworking craftsmen until David's time, accounting for their military might. The Israelite armies had only farm equipment to fight with. The only two in all of Israel who had swords were Saul and Jonathan, and theirs were likely of bronze and not iron. Now, the final verse in this chapter sets up chapter 14, but unfortunately, we'll have to save that for next summer. The big question, though, is this. What do we need to take away from chapter 13? The entire tone of this chapter is dark, but the lessons are many. First of all, God demands obedience, not expedience. 
It is so easy, even in our day and time, to rationalize disobedience to God and His Word. Our difficult circumstances can keep us from being faithful to God. But from God's point of view, difficult circumstances are never a legitimate excuse for failing to obey Him. Not only that, but God always demands full obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. We cannot afford to pick and choose where we will obey Him and where we will do our own thing. Finally, we learn from this passage that there is always great danger in taking matters into our own hands. And even when things get tough, we need to learn to wait on God. Even when it looks like things are derailing, we need to stay with what God has commanded us to do and to trust Him that He will turn it around. In our day and time, we don't have to worry about God taking the kingdom away from us. But he might remove us from our place of leadership. Or even worse, he might remove his hand of blessing from our lives. What about you this morning? Where do you stand with the Lord? Are you walking in obedience to him? Are you living a life that's according to his word? Are you lined up with his will for your life. I pray that you are. And that unlike Saul, you won't fall into sin and compromise, but you'll walk continually straight forward with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning you'll help us to learn from this passage of Scripture, this uh, chapter. Lord, it's rich with so much truth. And so, Lord, help us. Uh, even though this was uh, thousands of years ago, It is part of your living word. It is intended for our uh, growth. It's intended for our spiritual benefit. So, Lord, help us to learn from it this morning. Lord, I pray today that we would respond to you the the way you'd want us to. We pray if there's someone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they'll come to know him today in saving faith. I pray that all of us as believers would walk in obedience and, and faithfulness to you. And that we'd look at our own lives and see if there's any area that we need to address. But Lord, that uh, we'll uh, respond to you and your word and your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen.